Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. Welcome to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. More than 700,000 people have tested positive for the coronavirus in Florida since March. For those who have recovered from COVID-19, the illness has changed their lives forever. My colleague Stephanie Colombini talked with several people about what it was like to have COVID-19. And you're going to hear their stories all week here on WUSF, and we're going to bring you a couple on today's show. First, Stephanie joins us via Zoom to talk a little bit about the project. Stephanie, welcome. Thanks. Hi. So where did the idea for this come from? We're always thinking of ways to hear from actual members of the community so that we're not just talking to, you know, experts and politicians. And we thought about my Health News Florida editor, Julio Cho, and I were looking into what it might have been like for people that were just riding out the virus at home. We just wanted to know, you know, we've heard about hospitalization rates, but how many people were just sick in their homes? And we thought, why not reach out and and see what this is like rather than kind of having, you know, a hospital or something identify a patient for us and do it kind of that way. We figured we'd put a call out to the community and and hear from real people um, about their experience. And, And we really got a range. We were hoping that it would maybe inform future stories. Oh, you know, this person had a bad urgent care experience. Well, let's look into like what people's urgent care experiences have been like, things like that. But then the stories themselves ended up being so compelling that it was like, we just need to air these. You know, we just need people to tell their own story right now. How difficult was it to get people to open up about this? Because listening to some of these, it's a pretty harrowing, almost near-death experience for folks to, to have COVID-19. And then even after they're, uh, they're COVID negative, they're still dealing with some of the after effects of it. I was surprised at how open people were. I mean, we had great responses. This all came together. We put out a form on our website and, you know, we promoted it a little on the air and on social. And within like the first day of it posting, we had some responses. So that was exciting just to see that outpouring of response. But that, and as soon as I reached out to the people I reached out to, you know, they, they came right back. I think people really want to tell their stories. What I heard from everybody was, I just feel strongly about having my experience out there so that other people can learn from it because I think there is this concern that some in the community don't take this pandemic seriously enough. So everyone I spoke with was was very open about the nitty gritty because they felt like it was their way of of helping in this, you know, if that was the only thing they could do was to tell their story so it might educate one person, that was enough for them. And so it was it was touching how people, you know, poured their hearts out and, and some really powerful stories came out of it. And I think we all can learn from it. So we're going to hear three of these stories today. And COVID-19 affected these three people in different ways. But I wonder, just across this whole project and all the people that you talked to, was there a common thread of this experience of, of, of having the coronavirus? There are a few common threads. Um, the biggest in terms of the takeaway was that that learning experience and that desire to tell people, you know, take this seriously. That is something I heard from everyone I spoke with. But then even in terms of 
kind of virus response, you know, nobody really knew for sure how they got it. Everyone has theories and they can trace it back. You know, I bet it was that guy at Walgreens that didn't wear a mask or something like that. Everyone had theories, but no one really knew for sure. And I think that highlights maybe the challenges of contact tracing and, and how successful has that been around the state, around the country, because from the people I spoke with, which again was only a small group, but the common thread was there wasn't any of that done and there was no, you know, oh, we traced it back and I got it from this party. It was always kind of suspicion. Um, that was interesting. And the other common thread was that the people I talked to for the most part did their best to protect themselves. These were not people that were, you know, spring breaking on the beach and going wild. They were people that wore their masks, that washed their hands, that tried to stay home as much as possible, but still managed to get sick because that one day of letting their guard down, or because maybe it was because somebody around them in public didn't have a mask on, something sort of out of their control still resulted in them getting sick despite trying to be good stewards. Did any of the folks you talked to have trouble getting treatment or getting medical help for uh, for their for their symptoms? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in general, it was just hard because there really isn't treatment. Um, I just talked to a doctor who we'll hear from shortly. Who he got sick in March, so that was before anybody really knew what to do about COVID. And so it was kind of a guessing game and good thing he was a critical care doctor. So was able to sort of work while being a patient in his own ICU with people on his team to try and come up with a treatment, but they really didn't know a lot. Most of the people I talked to got sick in July when cases really spiked here. And the challenge there is uh, one person in particular talked about going to a hospital, going to an urgent care and not really getting any help because in the hospital's case, they were so overwhelmed with COVID patients that they had to prioritize who to admit. And she wasn't experiencing respiratory issues. So she was not on the list of people that would go into a hospital, even though she felt like, I'm getting really sick. I'm worried. I need to be in a hospital. There were more, you know, the, the hospital couldn't take her and she didn't have a great experience at urgent care either. She luckily did have one with her primary care physician who sort of helped her get care. Um, another woman talked about, you know, her frustration that all she could really take was Advil. You know, there, this these amazing groundbreaking treatments we're hearing reports about that might be accessible to someone like President Trump, but not to average citizens and, you know, she had Advil. So treatment definitely was a challenge and it still is today for many people. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about coronavirus, right? It's less than a year old, but we know more about it now and doctors know more about ways to treat it now than we did four, five, six months ago. This is probably breaking records in terms of how fast the medical advancements are coming along, but there's a lot of guessing and, you know, what somebody is recommending in April, we learned in May, actually that doesn't work. <laughs> like, so it's, it's fascinating to see how this evolves. So let's get into these, uh, these stories, audio postcards that we call them. And the first one what we're going we're gonna to air for folks is uh, the story of this doctor at Morton Plant Hospital in, in Clearwater. Uh, if you could, Stephanie, just, just introduce him and just set this up a little bit for us. 
Dr. Devandra Amin is a, a critical care physician at Morton Plant. So he has worked in ICUs for years, kind of right at the start of the pandemic as his hospital was like bracing for a COVID surge. They're seeing cases start popping up in Washington State, in New York. They're figuring out what we have to do to be ready in Florida. He gets sick. He ends up as a patient in his own intensive care unit and shares his story um, of what it was like in the early stages where we really didn't know much. It was daunting initially. At that time, we were really learning on how to manage and treat. Um, and with consensus between the group I work with and physicians from around the country, we were able to plan a treatment course with the drugs available. At that time, we did not have convalescent plasma available. Florida was not receiving remdesivir. And over the next several days, fortunately, I seemed to improve. I did not require ventilation. And luckily, I was able to be discharged on some oxygen about 10 days after admission. So it was a close call, but um, with the phenomenal care I got here at Morton Plant, with our intensive care unit staff, the physicians and nurses, I think uh, we beat this. We were not allowing visitation, which was standard across the country, because of risk to family and staff. The only way I could communicate was through uh, FaceTime. I could handle it. I knew how the Wi-Fi here worked. But for many of our older patients, that's not possible all the time. So it's very isolating as an experience. Over the last several weeks, we have opened up visitation to one or two people to give that sense of uh, community and support. Unfortunately, my father... He lives with us, and two days after I was discharged, he was admitted. And then after two weeks, um, he decided he didn't want to continue. Made up his own mind until the very end, at 90. Again, in our ICU, but um, phenomenal care. And gradually over time, things have improved. My lungs are not back to normal yet, based on breathing tests and imaging studies. Um, I'm off treatments for now, but I'll be getting a follow-up CT scan on the inflammation that I had, which unfortunately is affecting a lot of people uh, around the country. We do have protocols for managing that post-discharge now that we sit in place. They came back to work after about five weeks on a lighter rotation, lighter schedules, but other than stairs, I'm okay. If I'm climbing upstairs, then previously I could do, we have seven floors here, I could do seven floors without stopping. Now, after three floors, I'd have to stop, and hopefully in the next few weeks, it'll, it'll get better and better. The important thing was to realize that patients uh, have all sorts of thoughts going through their mind when they're going through this level of illness, which is unknown. It's the first time in my 30, 35-year practice history that we've been in a situation where we really didn't know how to treat something adequately. You know, we see this occasionally sporadically, but in, in a large number of people, it's very difficult, and to know if we're doing the right thing there's so much in literature about try this, try that. And then there was so much literature saying, let's not do any of that stuff because we don't know it works. People who are pure scientists who were not at the bedside felt like it was okay not to try these things because it wasn't proven. But you had to do something. It was difficult, um, especially when patients didn't make it. It was very difficult, personally, because of uh, my survival. We couldn't help everybody, unfortunately things are a little bit better. I'm afraid of a second surge coming through the fall in conjunction with the flu. We won't have a vaccine that's effective and proven until probably early next year, uh, hopefully. Uh, but the safety issue is very important.
pushing schools to open up without appropriate PPE is a huge risk factor. And we're seeing the consequences where schools are being shut down, classes are being shut down because of this. I know there's a need to get people back to a routine for their mental state and for education purposes, but you can't recover that education. You can't recover the economy until everybody has got a semblance of safety when they go to work or to school. So with opening up, you have to have appropriate safety and PPE to prevent further outbreaks. That was Dr. Devendra Amen, who is an intensive care unit doctor at Morton Plant Hospital in Clearwater. We'll next hear from Marianne Shea. She's a 73-year-old Sarasota resident who tested positive for COVID-19 in July. You know, when I came down with it, I was furious at whether or not I should be or shouldn't be. I was furious with DeSantis and with Trump and the administration since they knew so far in advance about this and they downplayed it and they kind of scoffed at mask wearing. Trump did and DeSantis refused to have a statewide mandate. And I felt that if they had, I wouldn't have gotten this. And as a result of getting this, I had headaches every single day, terrible pains in my limbs. The exhaustion was beyond imaginable. I remember saying to my wife, I feel like I've been hit by a truck. It was scary. It was frightening because I didn't know, and I am 73, and I thought, well, you know, if this gets any worse, I do need to be hospitalized. As a survivor, I felt very grateful that I survived it, you know, and I am very grateful that I survived it and that my case wasn't as severe as, you know, of course, those poor people that lost their lives. I still, I'm a long hauler, apparently, that I still have side effects. They're not as bad as they were. I mean, I was, when I was in the throes of it, very short of breath and couldn't do anything, you know, for over a month. Now I can, you know, walk the door. (laughs) But I still wake up sometimes during the night with breathtaking pains in my limbs. And the exhaustion is still sometimes paralyzing. Like today, I was supposed to go for my mammogram and my bone scan. And I had to reschedule it because you don't know when it's going to hit you. And it did. It just hit me. And I was too exhausted to drive. I've been back to my doctor. And she had said, you're going to just have to listen to your body. They don't know that much about this virus, unfortunately. I wish they did to be able to help us more with it. Of course, if I was the president, I'm sure there would be some drug or antidote for me. But I'm being just a regular citizen on Social Security. There isn't, and that's an issue. It made me very angry at the dichotomy between the wealthy and and the not so wealthy. I felt some compassion for Trump when he got COVID. I thought, well, that's terrible because I don't, I had it. I don't want anybody to get this disease. It's awful. But then when he turned around and said, oh, this is basically nothing. Don't let this dominate your life. And I heard him saying that so much anger rose up in me that I didn't even know was there. I was furious 
how could he say that? Number one, to all those loved ones of people that died, but also to us that are still having side effects, those of us who have survived and have dealt with this, and it was awful. How could he possibly say to us, oh, don't let this dominate your life? I mean, it was so insensitive because he has access to all these drugs. I just took Advil. That's what was available to me. That's what I was told by my doctor was available to me. So that's infuriating to me, you know, and I think much more has to be done for survivors. That was Marianne Shea of Sarasota. You're listening to Florida Matters. I'm Bradley George. We just heard from two COVID-19 survivors in Tampa Bay as part of an audio postcard project by my colleague Stephanie Colombini. We're going to take a short break here and we'll resume in just a moment. This is Florida Matters on WUSF 89.7. I'm Bradley George. We're hearing from COVID-19 survivors in the Tampa Bay area as part of an audio postcard project by my colleague Stephanie Colombini. We'll last hear from Amber Licks of Lando Lakes. But first, I talked with Stephanie about Amber's story. So, Stephanie, the last person we're hearing from today is uh, Amber Licks. You know, she's recovered from COVID-19, but she says that she's still dealing with uh, some pretty extreme symptoms, possible symptoms of COVID-19, gallstones, hernias, liver problems. This is something that we're hearing about, these so-called long haulers, people that uh, they they may be recovered from the virus, but they're still dealing with the after effects of it. Yeah. And what you more commonly hear are people still dealing with fatigue or shortness of breath, respiratory issues, things like that. Um, What's interesting about Amber's case and sort of a a prime example of how little we do know about this virus is that hers are gastrointestinal side effects or damage, really. It's that the virus may or may not have caused serious damage to her GI tract. Now, we have learned over the course of this pandemic, the seven months as we're like learning more about the virus, that GI symptoms are very common with uh, COVID-19, that, you know, people are reporting stomach problems, pain. Um, It makes sense that if you're taking all kinds of meds constantly to try and get this down, that you would probably do a number on your liver and kidneys. But these long-term side effects, that's a little more rare. I did look into it. Um, There is not a lot out there right now. I would see case reports kind of across the world of various people that have reported long-term GI damage, but it's very few and far between. And so it's hard to know for sure if what Amber is going through is definitely connected to COVID-19. She said her doctor kind of just assumes based on the various scans she had that it must be. But you know, things like gallstones are commonly chronically for, you know, they, they take time to form. So there might have been other things going on in her body that she just didn't know about and COVID exacerbated that. It, there's so much unknown, but it's hearing about these different reports that can help scientists and doctors as they're studying this virus and pulling all these kinds of case reports together, do more research and figure out maybe this affects the body in ways that we had no idea that it's, it's far more than the lungs. And here's Amber. Well, when I first got the COVID test, it turned out as a negative response. I did not have it, they said. And then I got really bad and I had to go to the hospital and they had to do a culture test. And the culture test, they're like, you absolutely have this. I don't know how they missed it before. 
um, it was very frustrating and it was also very good to finally have an answer because up until then you make excuses for everything. Your throat hurts. Well, maybe it's because my coffee was too hot yesterday. Your nose is allergies. And so it's awful to know I had it, but it was also great that it answered some questions. So um, the main things that they look for is they look for your lungs to make sure there's no popcorning, which I'm not positive what that is, but they said I didn't have any popcorning, so that's great. Um, and they look at your GI system. They look at your, you know, your gallbladder and they look at your um, spleen and your kidneys and your liver and all that kind of stuff, your pancreas, to make sure that everything looks okay. And mine, at that point, everything looked fine. Everything looked okay. So I was sent home with medication and I was told to take Advil and then two hours later take Aleve and then two hours later take Tylenol and just keep doing that. So I had that scan done on August 6th. On August 21st, um, I'd already gotten better from COVID and I had gone to my doctor to follow up and we went over everything and she went through my hospital visit and all that kind of stuff. And I was having stomach pains, but I just assumed it was because I hadn't been going to the bathroom properly, you know, I mean, I, I've been so sick, I've taken all that medication, it messes your system up a little bit. And I had this bulge on the left side of my body just under my ribs. So given that information, she wanted me to go in and get a scan done. And I found out that there's a whole list. Um, my spleen is enlarged. I have uh, gallstones, which were not apparent at the beginning of August. There is something wrong with my liver, which we haven't identified quite yet. Again, none of these things were on my skin on the 6th. All of those things um, had swollen my stomach so much, it actually ripped it in two places. I have two hernias that I'm actually looking for a surgeon right now to repair. As far as how it physically is affecting me, I have to wear compression pants for the hernias because they do hurt quite a bit. But I have to go to a GI specialist because now all this other stuff is going on. What is it going to do for me? Is it going to be, you know, forever? It's really stressful to have to, to be concerned about these kinds of things. You know, I'm, I'm paying thousands of dollars for the COVID stuff that I already did going to the hospital. And I'm looking down the line at all the additional thousands of dollars I'm going to have to spend to get this fixed too. And it's just very, very frustrating. I'm definitely more conscious of other people now. If people are around me, if people come to my door, things like that, because I know that they're basically walking germ balls. And so, and that bothers me that I feel that way about people because I'm a people person. Work has started their phase three opening and they started having people come back in the office. And it absolutely terrifies me that at some point I'm going to have to go back around people and possibly get this again, because once you have COVID, you're not guaranteed to not get it again. A lot of people don't take COVID seriously enough, I think. Um, at the beginning, they akined it to the flu. When you say things like it's just like the flu or, you know, mortality rate is not that bad, you are telling people like me that I'm going to have to deal with some of this for the rest of my life. You're telling people like me that it's okay, it doesn't matter. And I, I did everything right. I have hand sanitizer in my purse. I wore my mask and I still got sick and I'm not mad about that. I mean, you know, I'm not happy about it, but I know that I gave myself a good fighting chance, but there are some people that just don't care. And while they may have it not be affected, they're definitely passing it on to somebody else. And that's the biggest problem. If I could give anybody a takeaway from what's happened to me is please be more self-conscious about what's going on. Even if it's not a big deal, even if it's just like the flu, is it going to hurt you to wear that little piece of fabric over? Over your mouth? No. Is it going to hurt you to wash your hands and use hand sanitizer? Absolutely not. It won't hurt you any, but it might save a life. It might save somebody thousands and thousands of dollars plus the sickness and everything else. 
That was Amber Licks of Lando Lakes, and Stephanie joins me to talk more about the project. And the uh, the other person we heard from, Marianne Shea, you know, she talked about needing to go get a mammogram, and uh, but she's still dealing with, with COVID symptoms. And that's something we've heard from doctors is that either people who have been COVID patients or just because there's a strain on the health system, uh, maybe they're not getting the regular checkups and screenings that they need for, for conditions like cancer and the like. Yeah, she said um, she was just too wiped. She said she's been dealing with this kind of lethargy since she got sick over the summer and that you you never know when it's going to hit you. And so that day she had a couple um, preventative kind of procedures scheduled, a mammogram and her, um, I think, a bone exam. And she couldn't go because she was just too tired. And so hopefully she was able to reschedule that soon. But it's it's very frustrating. I know, you know, she talked about how, <laughs> the anger that she has kind of felt since getting this sickness. But I know she said she's fresh, you know, it's now it's October and she's still dealing with things from an illness in July. That's, that's very rare. And um, I hope that this is not something that stays with her for the rest of her life. But again, we just don't know what this virus can do yet. Now that you've finished this project, what do you know about COVID as a reporter now? versus when you started? Gosh, I think just the incredible range that it can have in terms of the damage it can do. You know, I heard from as mild as I basically had a cold for a week to I was in an ICU to this has been affecting me for months. Um, And even in the degree it could spread, uh, you know, a couple people that I talked to did spread it to a loved one or someone they had close contact with, but then other people, their entire family tested negative and they didn't spread it to anybody. And so you hear that this virus can spread rapidly in some cases and then not at all. And so both in terms of the severity and the transmissibility of it, I mean, I think I've learned even more about how we can't predict this virus and that um, you really have to brace yourself for any sort of scenario because it affects a diverse group of people in a diverse variety of ways. Do you plan on following up with the people that you interviewed, say, four, five, six months down the road to see how they're doing? I think that would be a great idea. Definitely, this has been a a great audience outreach project, and I want to do more of these. I want to follow up with people, uh, especially those who are still dealing with symptoms, because that if that is still an issue months from now or their doctors have learned more about those conditions and how much of it has been tied to COVID-19, that would be great to talk about. Based on on the people that you talked to and the the experiences that you heard, do you have questions that you want answered from from political leaders or from from, uh, public health officials about how Florida has handled this? Definitely have questions about contact tracing because it doesn't seem like much was done at all. And that is supposed to be, you know, a critical element of curbing outbreaks. And it just didn't seem like anyone had a clue and that they were sort of left hanging to to guess and put put the pieces together of who might have infected them. Um, So I definitely have questions about how contact tracing is being done here. Um, I would also say... I've got some questions for uh, local hospitals and urgent care facilities about how they prioritize who to care for and why, you know, what, why the best care wasn't always delivered. 
Um, and I would say, especially as we are, you know, approaching, as, as treatment is becoming more widely available, even though we haven't identified a treatment, but things like remdesivir and convalescent plasma, um, as that is becoming more available, how do you prioritize who gets it? You know, do you have to pay a premium? Do you have to meet all of these very specific criteria in order to qualify? Or is the average COVID patient eligible for that? Because, you know, Marianne Shea talked about how frustrated she was that she didn't have, you know, this multitude of, of treatment options available to her. That's WUSF and Health News Florida's Stephanie Colombini. Uh, Stephanie, great work on the series and thanks for uh, taking a few minutes today to talk to us about it. Thanks for having me. Today's show was produced by Denora Prevost. If you missed part of the conversation or want to listen again, you can find it at WUSFnews.org. I'm Bradley George. Thanks for listening to Florida Matters. Hope you'll join us again next week.